Well, let's stand together this morning as we read the Word of God together. Please take your Bibles and open them to James, the book of James, chapter 2. We will read verses 1 through 13. James 2, verses 1 through 13. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, You sit here in a good place, And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we are a living benediction of that reality. You have called us by your grace into fellowship with your Son, And it is in your Son where there is endless mercy for sinners. And we know that as we come to the cross of Christ, that the ground is level there. It is the reminder to us that we are all sinners, all equally deserving of your judgment and wrath. And we are all equally saved by the same means, namely your grace and your mercy. And Father, because this is true, there should never be an attitude of personal favoritism in the body of Christ. There should be a radical unity that we experience as brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you that as a body, we are all one in Christ. 
There is neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, young or old, but we are all one in Christ. We thank you for gospel unity. And we pray, O God, that in this particular assembly that you would deepen our unity together, even today, as we continue to study the great theme of unity in Philippians. May you open our eyes, O God. May you humble our hearts. May you give us the grace to radically pursue unity at every cost, with the exception of compromising the gospel. May we fulfill what you have prayed for us, that we would be one, and that we would have a oneness together that would have an impact upon the lost world as they observe us, that it would adorn the gospel, that it would make Jesus Christ attractive. May you please affect that in us, O God. Thank you for this Lord's Day. We again celebrate that we have a Savior, one who has died for us, the Lord Jesus, and one who has been buried, and one who has been raised from the dead. And we pray this all in his name and dedicate ourselves and this service to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will be looking at verses 1 through 4 again this morning. That is Philippians 2. Verses 1 through 4. The title of this message is an appeal for church unity. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. As people, I think it is fair to say that all of us have different things that we hate. Let me tell you some of the things that I personally hate. Number one, I hate soggy French fries. Don't you? French fries, in my estimation, have to be hot and they have to be crunchy. They can't be cold. They can't be soggy. Secondly, I hate it when my socks get wet when I'm walking around the house. Sometimes one of our kids will drop an ice cube on the floor and it will turn into a puddle. I won't see it. I'll walk on it. And then my sock gets wet, and I hate that. Don't you? Thirdly, I hate when people throw cigarettes out of their car window. I hate that whenever I see people do that. Some other things that I hate, I hate being late. I don't even like being on time. I like to be early. I think my dad, being an army man, instilled that in me. I also hate messes. Messes and being late make me nervous. Don't they to you? Or am I the only oddball here this morning? 
As you can see, the things that I hate are rather trivial, aren't they? But have you ever wondered, what does God hate? What does God Himself, Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, hate? According to Proverbs chapter 6, there are certain things that God hates. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. At the very top of the list of the things that God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, hates is pride. Pride. In Proverbs 8.13, wisdom is personified as Lady Wisdom, and she says in Proverbs 8.13 that she hates pride and arrogance. So please understand this morning that God is neither pleased with pride, neither is He indifferent to it. Listen, He hates it. He actively hates it with a holy hatred. But at this point, it is good for us to ask, what is pride? If it is at the top of the list in Proverbs 6, of the things which are an abomination to him, of the things that he hates, it is very good for us to know exactly what is pride. C.J. Mahaney gives a great definition when he says this, quote, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. That is a great definition of pride. Pride is an attitude of independence from God. It is to live for oneself and to exalt oneself rather than to live for God and to exalt God. It is to do what you want to do. It is to do your will on earth rather than the will of God on earth. It is really an attempt, listen, to be your own God. That is the essence of pride. It is to compete for supremacy with God Himself. It is an affront to God. It is an attack on the Godhood of God. And therefore, God hates it with a holy hatred. The Puritan Thomas Manton said this, Pride not only withdraws the heart from God, but lifts it up against God. Again, pride is an attack on God Himself as the Creator, the Sustainer, the Sovereign Lord of all. And some of the harshest language in all of the Bible is reserved for the proud. Listen to Psalm 5.5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You, that is God, you hate all who do iniquity. There is a sense in which God not only hates pride, but He hates the proud, according to Psalm 5.5. According to Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. You want to know what is abominable to God Himself? It is those who are proud in heart, those who compete for supremacy with God, those who want to live independent of God, those who want to make themselves to be God. God hates that with a holy hatred. 
On at least two occasions in the New Testament, in 1 Peter and James, the Bible says God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. In Mark 7, according to Jesus, one of the things that comes forth from the heart of man and defiles man is pride. Pride, then, is not, listen, a virtue. It is a vice. It is a wicked, foul, evil vice. But by nature, listen, all of us are proud people. We're born proud. J.C. Ryle says so well, quote, No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature as pride. It cleaves to us like our skin. It is natural for us as fallen, sinful human beings to be proud. We are a proud people. Someone has said that pride is the first thing that we put on in the morning and the last thing that we take off at night. But as we have already said, God hates pride. And the Bible gives some very severe warnings about the consequences of pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before what? Destruction. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. Beloved, be warned. Pride has consequences. The consequence of pride is destruction. Pride was the very first sin. It was the sin that the devil himself committed, and the result was he was cast out of heaven. Because of pride, Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Because of pride, King Saul of Israel lost his throne. Because of pride, King Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from human society and was reduced to an animal eating grass. Because of pride, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead in Acts 5. Beloved, again I say to you, pride has consequences. Pride brings destruction. It destroys our relationship with God. It destroys our relationship with people. Pride is the cause of war. It is the cause of arguments. It is the cause of divorce. And listen carefully, it is the cause of division in the church. And so I ask you, what is the true obstacle to unity in the church? What is it? You know what some people say? It's doctrine. Have you ever heard that? Some people have said and actually believe that doctrine is what brings division in the church. They say if we could just get rid of doctrine, we would have unity. These are the ones who say their only creed is Jesus. But that is not adequate. Because which Jesus are you talking about? Are you talking about the distorted Jesus from our popular culture? Everybody has a personal Jesus that they invented with their own imagination. Are you talking about the Mormon Jesus or the Muslim Jesus or the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? We need to have the right doctrine of Jesus, beloved, in order to have the Jesus of the Bible. We can't just say Jesus is our creed without having a sound biblical Christology, 
The worst thing the church could ever do is abandon doctrine for the sake of unity. That is not the kind of unity that is the will of God or which Jesus prayed for. If there is ever unity in the church without a doctrinal foundation, I say to you, it is a false unity. It is a false unity. It is not a unity that God is pleased with. So the true obstacle to unity in the church is not doctrine. Nor is it a legitimate difference of opinion. There are many things in life and in the church on which we have legitimate differences of opinion and preferences, and we can still love each other, get along with each other, and still have unity together in the church. Isn't that true? We don't agree about probably 10,000 different things. And they may be legitimate differences of opinion, but we can still get along, we can still love each other, we can still have a radical gospel unity together. Beloved, according to Paul in the epistle to the Philippians, the true obstacle to unity in the church, listen, it's not doctrine, it's not personal preference, it's not personal opinion, it is pride. It is pride. Pride goes before destruction, and one of the things that pride destroys is the unity of the church. As you know, if you have been with us these weeks, One of Paul's major themes in Philippians is the unity of the church. And as I said to you last time, Paul addressed the theme of unity in every letter in the New Testament that he wrote to a church. It was deeply on the heart of Paul. But his most potent and comprehensive treatment of unity in the church anywhere in the New Testament is found right here in the book of Philippians. There are a variety of ways that Paul stresses unity in this letter. Number one... He uses the word all, A-L-L, 31 times. 31 times in just four chapters. Now, if you were in school and you were to write a short letter, a short paper, and you were to use the same word 31 times in the letter, your teacher or professor would write on the front with bold red letters, redundant. Why would you use the same word 31 times within a very short letter? But Paul isn't being redundant, is he? He's being emphatic. He is laying great stress upon the need, the necessity of unity in the church. Another way that Paul stresses the unity of the church is in how he addresses the entire congregation back in verse 1 of chapter 1. Note there in verse 1, to all the saints. That's his first use of the word all, and 30 more times he will repeat it through the book. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Paul is not interested in just certain prominent individuals in the church. He's not just concerned about the rich or the leaders or those who are the office bearers. He is concerned about every single individual in the congregation. At the end of the book, in chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Every single saint was the audience, the recipient of this great letter. But these are really the previews of his stress on unity. At this point where we are in Philippians, we are at the very heart, the very epicenter of his appeal for unity. He is not just giving a preview. He is not just hinting it. He is at the very center of his appeal to unity. As we said last time in chapter 1, verse 27, 
Paul begins a new section in the book. This section continues all the way to chapter 2 and verse 18. The first command that Paul gives in the letter is found in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is the mandate. That is the imperative. That is the command from heaven to the church. And it governs the entire section all the way to chapter 2 and verse 18. The overarching theme of this long section is how the church is to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. As we have said, Paul's concern is not the doctrine of the gospel at this point, but the conduct of the gospel. The way the church is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel is by living together in unity. That is his stress. There in verse 27, he says the church is to stand firm in one spirit. Military term. Also in verse 27, the church is to strive together for the faith of the gospel with one mind. That's an athletic picture. And now as we come to chapter 2, Paul continues the theme of unity in the church. He begins with the word therefore. That, uh, that gives the idea that he is resuming the same address, the same appeal to unity in the church. And the way he does that in chapter 2 here in the first four verses is that he gives three aspects of church unity. Three aspects of church unity. The first aspect of church unity is in verses 1 through 2a. It is the motives of church unity. This is the why of church unity. And essentially what Paul says is that your relationship with the Lord, the way the Lord has loved you, is motive enough for you to be united together. Look there in verse 1. The encouragement in Christ, the consolation of God's love, the fellowship of the Spirit, the affection and compassion which God has poured out upon you, that is your motive for unity. Look at what the Lord has done for you in the gospel and be united. Further, he says in verse 2, with the second commandment he gives in the book, make my joy complete. The second motive Paul gives for us to be one in the church is the joy that it will bring to those who lead us. That's what will take the partial joy of Paul into fullness, into completion, when the body of Christ is one and unified together. If the church fails to unite together, it will violate the Lord's love for them, and it will diminish the joy of their leaders. The second aspect of unity is the manifestations of church unity in verse 2b. He says, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is what unity looks like. It isn't just all standing in a circle holding hands. It is when we are like-minded in the truth of the gospel. It is when we have the same love, equal love, for all in the church, when we all enjoy deep intimacy with each other, when we all live for the same things, when we all have the same purpose, namely to please Christ, to exalt Christ, and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now this brings us to the third aspect of unity, the third aspect of Paul's appeal, if you will, to church unity in verses 3 and 4, namely the means of church unity. We could call this the how. How? 
We've seen the why, the what, and now the how. It's one thing for Paul to motivate us to unity and to give us a picture of what unity in the church looks like, but now he is going to give us the means of achieving it. And first of all, in verse 3, he says there's something that is in with each and every one of us that we have to get rid of. Please note in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. Do you note that? Not do most things, but do nothing from selfishness. Beloved, if we are going to have unity together, this is how it is to be done. This is the way to unity. This is the path of unity. This is the means. This is the how. Paul begins with the total prohibition of pride. Pride that is manifested in selfishness. If you ever go to Ming Garden Chinese restaurant, which I know some of you do, you walk up the little ramp or the steps, and on the door, what does it say? No tank tops. <laughs> you ever notice that? It's made me want to walk in with a tank top and see what might happen. No tank tops. They will not serve you if you are wearing a tank top. Well, we might want to put a little sign on the door of the church that says, do nothing from selfishness. That is not allowed within the body of Christ. It is totally prohibited. One writer says pride is more insidious in the church than radon in the home. It is a poison. It is destructive. It is vile. It is foul. Do you realize that the self-esteem movement is based upon a lie? based upon a lie, a false premise, a false way of thinking about man and God and the world. You see, our problem is not that we don't love each other and love ourselves enough. You know what our real problem is? We love ourselves too much. My problem is that I care way too much about Sean. And you care way too much about you. The problem isn't that we don't love ourselves enough. We love ourselves way too much. In fact, we are madly in love with ourselves. We are in a love affair with self. Self is the idol of choice. The most popular idol in the world is self. We idolize ourselves. We are naturally self-centered people, but Paul says, do nothing. Do nothing from selfishness. I like what Samuel Wilberforce said, quote, think as little as possible about yourself. Turn your eyes resolutely from any view of your influence, your success, your following. Above all, speak as little as possible about yourself, end quote. In other words, do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1, verse 17. You may remember that Paul is addressing the reality that certain preachers from the church in Rome were preaching the right message from the wrong motive. They were preaching Christ, but they were motivated by selfish ambition. They did it to exalt themselves, to bring attention to themselves, to impress others with themselves. And their selfishness in verse 15 
cause them to do strife, he says. Envy and strife. That is envy for Paul and strife directed against Paul because they were selfish. They were jealous of Paul. So, beloved, selfishness produces strife. Selfish people are divisive people. Paul was experiencing that even as he wrote this letter. So here's how selfishness thinks. I want what I want. I want my way. Sounds like Burger King. I want it my way. I am right. I am first. I am most important. The church should revolve around me and listen to me and cater to me. Have you ever heard this one? This is my church. I've heard that. It's a terrible statement of selfishness. Listen, that kind of thinking will destroy the unity of the church. It has in the past and it is doing it today, no doubt, in many churches across the world. And it only takes a few people who think like that to bring fraction and division into the church. I remember some more than 10 years ago when I was a youth minister at Waller Baptist Church in Bossier City. We decided to paint the youth room. We had a really old youth room. It looked bad. It needed a good makeover. All that we could afford was to paint the room. And so I told the youth, let me give you a couple of color options, and then you're going to vote on which color to choose. That sounds fair, doesn't it? I don't think I could have handled it any differently as I look back on it. Well, we voted on the color, and after we voted, there was one particular mom and her daughter, they just stormed out of the youth room, in a puff, all upset. Shelly and I had to chase them down the hallway And the reason why they were so upset was that their color for the youth room had been voted down. This is a grown woman and a high school daughter. That was selfish. That was a terrible display of selfishness. I had never seen anything like it in the church up until that time. It brought real disunity into our church. So listen, if we are going to achieve unity in the church, we must begin by getting rid of selfishness. It has to be crucified. In the grand scheme of things, our personal preferences don't really matter. Our personal opinions and personal agendas aren't really that important. Certainly, they should never be allowed to cause fraction and division and disunity in the church. Listen carefully. We must never compromise the truth of the gospel. We must be willing to die for the gospel But listen to this, we must be very quick to compromise our personal preferences, our personal opinions for the sake of unity in the church. I submit to you it doesn't really matter what color the youth room is or what color the carpet is in the sanctuary. Those things are trivial. They don't really matter. And I would say to you that unity in the church is so elusive because selfishness is so pervasive. But by the Spirit, we are to put to death this rotten deed of the flesh, and the result will be unity together. So, first way to achieve unity is to get rid of selfishness. 
There's a second thing that has no place in the church, Paul says, or empty conceits. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This is a very interesting word. Literally, this word is vainglory. Vainglory, kind of an old word, empty glory. It means to have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. (laughs) That's exactly what selfish people are like, isn't it? They have this tremendously exaggerated opinion of themselves. It's like going to the carnival and looking in that distorted mirror. Only it doesn't make you wide or short. What it does, vainglory, what it does is makes you think that you are a thousand times more important than you really are. I'm a football fan, and it's football season. And I recently heard or read that Terrell Owens, who plays for the Cincinnati Bengals, and he makes $2 million a year, he said, it's like playing for free. He's complaining that he doesn't make enough money. Only $2 million a year. Can you believe that? And he doesn't even work all year. It's like working for free. You know what that is? That's vain glory. Vain glory. That is an exaggerated view of self. And I apologize to any Cincinnati Bengals fans. (laughs) I have a friend of mine who worked at a summer camp in Florida a couple summers ago. And there was a a youth group that came from a very prominent church in Texas, and their very prominent, well-known pastor came with them. Before they arrived, the workers at the camp were instructed, if you ever intersect this pastor, you have to call him Dr. So-and-so. Do not call him Brother So-and-so. Do not call him Pastor So-and-so. You must call him Dr. So-and-so. You know what that is? Vainglory. That is an exaggerated opinion of yourself. Winston Churchill was once asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? He responded by saying, it's quite flattering. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as large. That's more like it. That's having a proper view of yourself. George Whitfield, the great preacher of the Great Awakening, was criticized in a letter for wearing a tie that was too long. Can you imagine such a criticism being leveled against a man of God like that for something so trivial? But I want you to hear how he wrote back. I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever know. If I were you, I would write longer letters. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. That is the opposite of vainglory. May God give us that kind of humility, that kind of view of ourselves. So what Paul has said so far is that selfishness and vainglory are mortal enemies of unity in the church, and they must be crucified. By the power of the Spirit, they must be put to death in the lives of every individual saint, and they must be replaced with something else. He says, but with humility of mind. 
The word but, a technical note, there is more than one Greek word for but. This is Allah. It is the strongest word. It is a strong contrast. You have the selfishness and the vainglory on one side, and over here, in tremendous contrast to those vices, you have this humility of mind. They're polar opposites. I love what John Stott said. In every aspect of the Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. The greatest foe to your Christian life is pride. The greatest ally to your Christian life is humility. And he's right. If there's ever going to be unity in the church, there must be the absence of pride, and there must be the presence of humility. Why? Because humble people are not divisive. You show me a divisive person, I will show you pride. You understand that? You show me somebody who gets along with people, who is gracious and kind, who would never disturb the unity of the church, and I will show you a humble person. Humble people do not cause divisions in the church. They pursue unity. Humble people are peacemakers. They breathe grace, don't they? As we are learning in the Peacemaker book. But what does humility look like? According to Paul, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's humility. That's how it is expressed. So I ask you, are you humble? <laughs> I remember asking that one time, and a lady raised her hand when I said, raise your hand if you're humble, and she did it. You're not supposed to do that. I mean, the moment you say you're humble, I mean, then you're really defeating the whole reality of humility. If you're like me, I'm reluctant to say I'm humble because I know my own heart. I know the propensity of my own heart. I know the thoughts, the motives, the intentions, the bents towards pride in my own heart. But I like what C.J. Mahaney said about humility. He said this, quote, I'm a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. I'm a proud man, but I am pursuing humility by the grace of God. Does that fit you? Can you say that by the grace of God, right now you are actively seeking humility? Are you growing in humility? And if you are pursuing humility, this is what it's going to look like in your life. You will regard one another as more important than yourselves. Listen, you're not going to have vainglory. You're not going to have selfishness. You're not going to have this inflated view of yourself where you think everything revolves around you and that you're personal opinions and personal preferences are gospel truth. That's not going to exist. Humility is when you don't have an exaggerated opinion of yourself. One writer said this, he who knows himself best esteems himself least. That's a good quote, great insight. Do you really know yourself? The more you know you, listen, the less esteem for yourself you will have. Here's a good question for you. Who is the worst sinner that you know? The worst sinner that I know is me. The worst sinner that you know is you. And the more you know yourself, the more you understand your own bent to sin, your own native corruption in your heart, the less esteem you will have for yourself. That is part and parcel of humility. Humility is coming to the awareness that you are not more important than others. 
It is coming to the awareness that you are not the center of it all. It is to move from being self-centered to being others-centered. That is exactly what Paul is saying here in Philippians 2. It's when you come to understand that your preferences and your opinions and your agendas and your rights don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Humility is when you come to see yourself as a servant, as a servant. And you may remember from our study of the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus repeatedly tried to instill this truth in the minds of his disciples. Let's be reminded of that by going to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. This is one of the most egregious acts by the disciples in terms of their self-centered pride. Acts 20 and verse 20. It's really a rather embarrassing account for the men who are front and center here. Matthew 20, 20, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Can you imagine Jesus, or can you imagine your mother, rather, going to Jesus in behalf of her sons, asking for a favor? Jesus, I want to ask you to do something for my two boys. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine might sit one on your right hand and one on your left. Wow. What an embarrassing wish. I love my boys, and when you come back in authority and power and glory, I want them to sit on either side of you, ruling and reigning over the world. Talk about vainglory. Talk about selfishness. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I mean, how do you get that kind of glory? It takes a unique kind of suffering, drinking the cup. And they said, we are able. What wicked comment. He said to them, my cup you shall drink. In other words, you will suffer. But to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Verse 24, and hearing this, the ten, that is the other of the twelve, became indignant with the two brothers. You know why they're angry? Because the other two got to Jesus first. They all want the same thing. They're all driven by selfishness and vainglory. They all have an exaggerated view of themselves, and they're simply mad that they have been beat to the punch. And so, verse 24, and hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. What is the way of the world? The way of the world is pride, controlling people, governing people, lording it over people. Verse 26, it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your, what? servant. Verse 27, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your doulos, slave. The way to greatness in the kingdom is humility. The way to rise in the kingdom is by going down. Jesus totally rebukes the vainglory and the self-centeredness of these disciples. If you go to Romans, 12, I want you to see some other verses in the New Testament that teach the same truth consistent with Jesus and with Paul in Philippians 2. Go to Romans 12 and verse 10. 
Romans 12 in verse 10. This is when Paul gets to the very practical aspect of the book of Romans, Christian conduct, Christian behavior. In verse 10 he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to others. Don't be self-centered. In chapter 15 of Romans, in verse 1, he is again dealing with unity in the church. There was a disunity problem in the church at Rome. He says in Romans 15, 1, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Don't just live for yourself, to please yourself. Think about the others in the church. Verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. You live for the good of your neighbor, to build up your neighbor. It is not about you. It's about others. It's about serving Christ by serving his people. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24, another verse I want us to briefly look at. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 Paul writes, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Again, it's about repudiating selfishness, repudiating vainglory, and about embracing loving your neighbor as yourself. And you are aware in chapter 13 when Paul talks about love, what love does. They're all verbs. There are certain things that love does, certain things that love doesn't do. He says in verse 5, it does, that is love does not seek its own. That is not love. If you are being selfish, you are not walking in love because love doesn't act that way. Love seeks the good of the neighbor. Beloved, this is really normal Christian living, to love your neighbor as yourself. Back to Philippians 2. As a footnote, as we are turning back to Philippians 2, do you realize that you don't do humility alone? Humility requires others. If humility is regarding others as more important than yourselves, then humility requires the church. You can't express humility truly outside of the context of the local church. Humility is not passive, it is active. Humility is not just sitting in your room being humble all by yourself. That's not humility. True humility is an active pursuit of serving others. That's humility. And as you regard others as more important than yourself, you would never become, listen, the cause of disunity in the church. Again, humble servants are not divisive people. And Paul expands upon this in verse 4 when he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not a sin to look out for your own personal interests. I mean, you have to work. You have to supply the needs of yourself and for your family. I mean, that's just reasonable. That is how God has made us. But what is a sin is if you only look out for your own personal interests and not the interests of other people. So humility that produces unity is expressed in having a concern for the welfare of other people. I'm not going to ever cause fraction, disunity with other people. All I care about is how can I build them up? How can I strengthen them? How can I serve them? How can I help them? So, beloved, in verses 3 and 4 here, Philippians 2, Paul gives the problem. 
and he gives the remedy. The problem is pride, and the remedy is what? It's humility. Humility is the path of unity. The church then must constantly seek to crucify pride and clothe itself with humility, again, because humility is the path, it is the way, it is the means to unity. You want unity? Get rid of pride and put on humility. So it's a high standard, isn't it? It's a high standard. The one thing that makes Paul such a master teacher is that he doesn't just teach with words and instruction, verbal instruction. He teaches by way of example. I love that about the Apostle Paul. I want you to consider what he wrote about himself. I'm going to give you three references, and I'm going to give them to you in the order in which they were written. Earlier in his ministry, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles. No vainglory there. He's an apostle, but he's at the very lowest rung. In Ephesians 3.8, he called himself the very least of the saints. Not even calling himself an apostle anymore, a saint, but as he thinks about himself as a saint, he is the least of them. That's humility. But then in 1 Timothy 1.15, which he writes later, you know what he refers to himself as? Listen to this, the chief of sinners. That is an amazing level of humility. He has gone from talking about himself in terms of an apostle to talking about himself in terms of a saint to now talking about himself as the worst, the chief of sinners. And so Paul has this declining view of himself, and as he does that, beloved, he has an increasing level of humility. The way up is the way down. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. Paul was a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. And so far in Philippians, he has modeled humility in two ways. You will remember these both in chapter 1, but let me remind you of them. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, do you remember how he handled his detractors? Those who were envious of him and jealous of him and trying to cause him pain in his imprisonment? How did Paul handle them? In verse 18, what does he say? In this I rejoice. He rejoiced over his detractors. You know what that is? That's humility. The natural thing to do when people come against you is to defend yourself or to attack them. But Paul just rejoices because they're preaching Christ. And then in verse 24 through 26 of chapter 1, you know what he is willing to do? He is willing to forego his personal preference to depart from this world, to be with Christ, which is very much better, and to stay here in the world to do fruitful labor in the church. If it's up to Paul, he'd rather go to heaven. But if it's also up to Paul, he will be selfless and stay because it's better for the church. What a model of humility. But another expression of his humility is that he understood that he was not the ultimate example of humility. Who is? Jesus Christ. And so in the next passage, Paul is going to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ as a model of humility. And Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, is one of the most monumental passages in all of the Bible. And we will have the privilege, Lord willing, next Sunday to begin to see 
Jesus Christ in his utter humiliation as a model for us of humility in the church. So as we conclude, if you would take your bulletin and look at the meditation theme. The theme is the appeal or an appeal to church unity. And it summarizes what we have seen in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. The motivations, number one, the motivations for church unity are the Lord's great love for us and the joy of our spiritual leaders. Number two, the manifestations of church unity are when the church is like-minded regarding the truth of the gospel, when it loves everyone equally, when it enjoys deep intimacy as brothers and sisters in Christ, and when it lives for the same things, namely pleasing Christ, exalting Christ, and advancing the gospel of Christ. And then number three, the means of church unity is to put off pride and to put on humility, which seeks to serve the needs of others. And then lastly, number four, the Lord calls the church to a radical pursuit of unity through the radical pursuit of humility. Are you pursuing humility by the grace of God? Do you actively seek to serve others? Do you subordinate your personal opinions and preferences for the sake of unity in the church? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in the Word of God, and we confess the Word of God is so enriching to us. We thank you that every word of it is true, that it is living and active, and that it has the power to transform our lives. And we pray, O oh God, that you would continue to work humility in us as we serve one another in love, and the result will be a unity in the church that will be evangelistic and that will bring honor to your great and holy name. We pray that you would continue to teach us much in the weeks to come as we look at the tremendous humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great model, and I pray that you would use his humility as a means of making us humble and transforming us by the grace of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.